Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Minoush Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science, and delighted to have those of you who are here in person, as well as the, as the several hundred people who are joining us online. I'm delighted to welcome you to this event hosted by our Department of Management at the LSE for a public discussion of a forthcoming book by our speakers, Saul Estrin and Simon Commander. For those of you who have engaged with our Department of Management in recent years, uh, you will have encountered Saul Estrin, who, who has been involved uh, in the department for the last 23 years. He first joined LSE in 1984, rejoining 16 years ago to establish the Department of Management and pioneered many of the management courses that our students take today. He recently became Professor Emeritus of Managerial Economics and Strategy, and his career has also taken him to the London Business School, and had seen him serve as the president of the European Association for Comparative Economic Systems. And I'm particularly grateful for, to Saul for some work he led for us at the LSE to think about lifelong learning and what we call extended education. I also wanted to introduce Simon Commander, a very dear old friend from way, way back in life. Uh, he is a managing partner at Altura Partners, a firm which provides policy and strategic advice to governments in emerging markets, many of which in, are in Asia. He previously worked at the World Bank, at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and has held academic posts at Cambridge, as well as the London Business School, and is currently a visiting professor at the IE Business School. So in a few moments, I will be inviting them to discuss their new book, which is called The Connections World, The Future of Asian Capitalism. It draws upon their combined expertise in comparative economics and policy design and takes a very original approach to map the sources of Asia's success, whilst also asking ambitious questions of what we might expect from Asia in the next decade and beyond. And they take a critical look uh, at the so-called Asian model and what that implications of that might be for the century ahead. Before I turn to them, though, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, this event is meant to be a, a dialogue, so they will present uh, the ideas in their book, but then we'll open it up for a discussion with the audience. And I think we have a particularly knowledgeable audience this evening. Uh, you'll have an opportunity to present to, to present questions to, to the speakers, and we'll also be taking questions from our online audience who can use the Q&A function to send those. For those who are keen on Twitter, the hashtag for tonight's event is hashtag LSE Connections. And uh, please know that we are recording this event and we'll put it online, barring any technical difficulties. So with that, I turn to the main event and I will invite first Saul and then Simon to present. Oh, I'm so sorry. I had that backwards. Simon, then Saul to present uh, their book to us this evening. Simon, welcome. Okay, thank you. Lovely. Thanks a lot. Okay. Um, good evening, and very nice to see you. Some friends, some colleagues, and 
those of you I don't know, welcome, and as well as to people who are online. So it's, we're very happy to be able to be here at LSE, um, where Saul, of course, is based, and to, to, to launch our book. Um, it was the product of COVID in a way, in the sense that it probably wouldn't have been written unless we had uh, the time to do it and nowhere else to go. And generally, uh, the sort of lack of discipline had to be dealt with. So it, it, it's one of the a decent fruit of, uh, at least in my way of thinking, of, of, of COVID. Um, and I hope you'll think it too. And I hope we'll have a very good discussion. So let me get into the, the substance of it. Um, the book is not modest in the question it answers. Whether we succeed or not is up to you and other readers in the future to tell. I mean, essentially what we're asking is, how has Asia been the sort of extraordinary success story it has been over the last 50 years? It has been the success story, at least for people like all of us who are interested in development economics. Um, but it then goes on to say, well, having got there, and we have a diagnosis, so we have an analysis of why it got there, what is likely to be Asia's future? And this, in a sense, is even more important because, as we know, Asia accounts for roughly 60% or more of the world's population. Its growth or lack of it will depend, uh, will materially influence the number of people in poverty and the like. And it will also have enormous impact, as it has done, on inequality both within and across countries. So really, these are very big questions. And our approach, which I think is, is quite original and perhaps even unique, um, is not just to, to look at where it's got and where it's heading, but to ask what, in a sense, are Asia's main fragilities and how can they be addressed if the next 50-odd years are going to be Asia's, as it were. Now, Asia's impressive growth has been achieved through a really a very different range of policies and business configurations, which we'll come to very shortly, than in much of the rich world. And to put it in simple form, essentially, there's been lots of industrial policy working out of the state, both horizontal industrial policy, regulations and the like, but also vertical industrial policy, something that many of us in this country have always been taught to think of as verboten, uh, for good or bad, um, and uh, business groups, because business in Asia, which is extremely dynamic, has, as we will see, a very different organizational format. Now, what we argue is that despite Asia being very, very different, and by the way, I should mention in the pack of slides, which we'll have access to ultimately, uh, Asia on the map, it, what we're talking about is really middle-income Asia, not the poorer countries so much. In, in Asia, despite many differences in political and other systems, there are some many common and important features. And the most important and common feature that we pick up on in the book and its centerpiece are these pervasive and persistent networks of connections and ties that run between politicians and business. And these ties, these links, create and facilitate uh, privileged access and returns. And this, in some contexts, can be extremely positive but as we will also see, that it carries slightly ambiguous connotations looking forward. Now, we call this, the title of the book, The Connections World. Uh, and the argument 
briefly put, is that the connections world has been highly supportive to Asia's growth so far, but it's not necessarily going to be supportive in the future. In fact, it's potentially quite disruptive. Okay, so what are the components of the connections world? At the apex of it sit, as you would imagine, political parties and individual politicians. Now, obviously, that depends on the country. If you're in China and Vietnam, the party is the unique party, the Communist Party. If you're in other countries, there are multiplicity of parties and more, um, more contestation. Uh, but then underneath that, or with it, you have businesses. And as I mentioned already, many of those businesses are put together in business groups. And I'll come to what they are in a, in a few minutes. Now, the interactions between politicians, politics, and businesses is extremely transactional. Really, they don't do it for love of each other. Uh, they do it for love of mutual returns, and in some cases for reciprocity. So uh, in the book, we document this in a way. Politicians look to firms to make campaign contributions, provide jobs for them, sometimes when they get voted out of power, or their family, or create jobs in politically important regions or politically important times. And firms look to politicians for protection from foreign or domestic competition, preferentialism of one form. They often look for subsidies, loans, quite often from public sector banks. They always look for public sector contracts where they can get them. And in many countries, including those that have liberalized, such as India over the last 20 odd years, uh, they look for the receipt of permits and licenses to operate because there are lots of sectors where that sort of thing still, um, still is, is in play. And the point that we make in the book is there's, there's a lot of reciprocity at work in these relationships, and we document it. Now, you're probably thinking, well, isn't this just about cronyism and kickbacks and things like that? Well, the answer is it isn't, because the networks that we focus on are much larger than individual acts of cronyism designed to basically take public resources into public private hands. Networks are both large, uh, highly connected, very adaptive, purposive, and as I pointed out, way more significant than, than cronyism. And these webs of connections that link up politics and business bind together not only with common purpose, but also have very common modus operandi, ways of working. And this cuts across political systems. It is remarkable that we find in the book that the ways of working are very similar, whether you're in Vietnam with its unique party or whether you're in Indonesia with its multiplicity of political parties. And the shape of these networks is influenced by, of course, the broader political system and institutional format. Take a look at these beautiful network maps that have been created by someone actually in this room um, with us, um, Stavros Popakis who's sitting there. Uh, these beautiful maps, in a way, are the, using uh, an important database that we have for the book, which comes a proprietary database, which we got through the World Bank. And essentially what it does, it maps each of these little pixels, these little things, is a node, and then the ties, the links between them. So in the case of China, I forget them. I, uh, China is on the left, by the way, and India is on the right. Uh, you'd have about 80,000 nodes. And in the case of China, about 190,000 uh, ties or connections. 
And obviously, you see an enormous difference. And that comes from the political system. So right at the heart, uh, that dark red, the ochre type color, you have the Communist Party, around it, a whole bunch of Communist Party politicians, and then radiating around it, around the iris, as it were, lots of SOEs, state-owned enterprises. But, and this is very important, take a look at the number of green dots. These are private firms. Now, the India network map on the other side, as you can see, has two big parties there. They happen to be Congress and BJP, but also a bunch of smaller ones, which are the main regional parties. And then they have a bunch of links. Again, there are SOEs there, but there are also a great number of um, uh, private firms as well as individuals. And in the book, we have these maps for all of the countries that we're covering. And from that, I want you to get a, a couple of thing, uh, things out of it before we move on. The first is that most of these networks are highly integrated. Actually, most autocratic systems, networks tend not to be very integrated, but actually because of the role of the Communist Party in both China and Vietnam, they're very highly integrated. And in them, you know, not just have politicians, but you have lots of private players private firms, private individuals. And that's true across all the countries. So one very important part of the book looks at those networks. Now, I should say that gives the framework. And in the book, we go into the detail using cases to try and get the texture of those connections, how they actually work, how they function, and the like. And the reason we have to do that is not only because it's interesting, but because, of course, many of these networks are not exactly telling you what is going on. They're not just putting it in the press. They're quite secretive and transparency is often a big issue. So we use a lot of uh, other materials to get at that. Now, the thing I mentioned already was you have politics, politicians, there's maps there. You also then have the business organization in the connections world. And there's a striking difference from, say, this country or most of the OECD. Um, most, of the business, most of the important businesses are rolled up in things called business groups. And these aren't the same as OECD conglomerates, not at all. Asian business groups are mostly family, dynastic. They're often highly diversified. They do enormous numbers of things. I'm going to give you an example very shortly. And they're very, very persistent. So even when they lose favor with the people in power, and they sometimes do when the leader or the other falls, they very rarely actually uh, get booted out or lose their assets. Now, they've organized in this sort of way to achieve a variety of things. First, they have pyramid-like structures, which means that their owners, oligarchs or families or whatever, have levels of control which way exceed uh, their actual levels of ownership. Minority shareholders are consistently disadvantaged, and these structures allow the owners to basically move resources around at will, depending on what the aims of, their, of those owners are. Sometimes those, those aims are good, sometimes those aims are, are not so good. Now, business groups, other than functioning this way, proven over time in Asia to be enormously adept at securing an entrenching market power while at the same time leveraging their connections. And our argument in the book, which we feel is quite original, is that actually the business group is not just a product of 
having to deal with missing markets like markets for uh, good management or markets for capital, which is maybe part of the reason, but it's also because business groups are marvelous organizational format for dealing with politicians, for functioning indeed in the so-called connections world. They provide concentrated points of contact, they reduce complexity, and by the way, as an aside, their own organizational complexity is enormously helpful in repelling predators, including politicians who want to turn on them. So there are a variety of things at work. And leading on from that, Asian business groups are enormously accomplished at centralizing wealth and business power in relatively few hands. Just to give you an example from probably one of the most successful countries in the region by a long country mile, uh, South Korea, Samsung, the one company, well, it's, it's many companies, but Samsung as a group now counts for over 20% of South Korea's GDP. And the son of Samsung's founder, who died a few years ago, uh, left an estate in excess of $20 billion. In Thailand, the consolidated Caravanant family, who own the CP Group, amongst other things, with very close ties to China and to the party, their family wealth exceeds 25 billion now, with family members very active in politics and in advisory and the like. And the final point I want to make from this is, not only do they do this concentration of wealth and business power, but they're enormously adaptable over time. So probably some of you will recollect or certainly know about the fall of Suharto in Indonesia, and there was a concerted attack on some of the vested interests, as it was termed at that time. Many of these were business groups that had been established in his period and in links to his family. Let me tell you, almost none of them actually have lost out over time. In fact, the group, the Salim group that was most closely connected, has not only prospered, but is now still one of the largest business groups in, in the country. So it doesn't matter, actually, once you, even if you lose uh, political connections, it doesn't seem to have a huge material impact on your ability to function. Now, let me just give you an example, perhaps an egregious example, of a business group um, that is um, getting a lot of notice at the moment, uh, the Adani Group. Its owner, um, Gautam Adani, is now notionally at least uh, India's richest man, even richer than the Ambani's. The group has combined revenues of about 13 billion, a market cap of 40 billion and rising for whatever reason. It has six publicly traded companies. It's enormously diversified, by the way. And let me just say as an aside, the more diversified, in other words, the more sectors that a business group tends to operate in, the more you can probably intuit that it's reliant on political connections for its operations. Adani has its own internal capital market. It's not clear that it's um, they're missing markets in India, but it has its own internal market. And it has a really a huge proliferation of related party transactions lending to each other on, on terms that are, are by no means transparent. And we give some examples there. And the Adani Group, which is part of the reason why I put it up, in a period of time when business groups and their connections to power in India have not actually in general been strengthening, if anything, they've been perhaps flatlining, 
Adani's connections have certainly proved an, uh, an, an exception and a, and a stark illustration of how politics and business can come together in these ways. Now, very quickly, I've got to move on. I don't want to take too much time. The, the wealth and the like. Look at these extraordinary numbers. These are simply the number of billionaires in China and India on the left. As you can see, um, down in 2000, India had a few, China had none. And uh, if we go to 2020, using the Credit Suisse numbers, then you find that China has roughly 400 uh, and India over 100. And this is true in the other countries of our region as well. So Vietnam has, has got a series of very successful business groups and billionaires that are associated with them. Now, let me wrap up my bit and I'll hand over to, to, to Saul. Our argument in the book is that these webs of connections, these networks, um, powerful though they are, with those consequences that I've just explained, they have been, on the whole, highly supportive to Asia's economic renaissance, whether by design, industrial policy, i.e. Korea and China particularly, or whether more by happenstance. And as incomes have risen, these groups have not only become more important, they've become highly entrenched, and we'll come to one. The book argues that this is not unambiguously good news. Because in point of fact, it exposes a set of what we call fallibilities and stores up a range of problems that will likely extend into the future. And very quickly, let me summarize. One is the attenuation of competition, constraining productivity, a major point. The second is that even though these groups create perfectly good jobs, they don't create many. So they limit good job creation, and they are important in sustaining informality, which in turn is associated with low productivity uh, and low wages. The third point, which is fundamental to argument, is that they themselves may actually be quite innovative, but in aggregate, they hold back the shift to an economy based on innovation. The fourth is that they can be very helpful in sustaining weak, incompetent, or venal governments, and there are plentiful examples of that, unfortunately. And the fifth, which goes back to the wealth point and the concentration of, of incomes and wealth, is that they have an inherent tendency to exclusion, inequality, and I might add potentially political instability, particularly uh, in the case of the autocracies. So at that point, I'm going to hand over to Saul, who's going to take the argument on and look at this particular components. Okay, is that worth it? Yeah. Uh, thanks, uh, Simon. So uh, my part of this um, uh, presentation is going to be firstly about the uh, impact of the connections world, what, what the points that were on the previous slide, and secondly, uh, what one might do to improve the performance of Asian economies. So what sort of policy implications come out of all of this? Now, um, we're not arguing here that business groups are inherently inefficient organizations. They may be very efficient organizations. They concentrate resources, for example. 
uh, and they coordinate resources and they drive profits. They're very profitable organizations. Our concerns are not necessarily with the organizations per se, but with their impact on the broader economies in which they operate. And in this part of the discussion, I'm going to talk about three areas, competition, uh, uh, market structure, employment, and the creation of jobs and innovation. Now, let's start with competition. Uh, um, the connections world, it's really important to understand, is a, an equilibrium in political economy. That is to say, uh, um, uh, it's an equilibrium, sorry, which favors incumbents over potential entrants. You've got this deal between the politicians and a really rather small group of dynastic oligarchs, and they've got the game sewn up. And one of the key things they're not very interested in is letting anyone else enter that game, because that would disrupt uh, the very finely balanced status quo. Now, one of the implications of that is that neither the business groups nor politicians are really in interested in allowing competition or new entry or indeed exits. They want to leave the structure of firms essentially frozen. And talking a little bit about some of the implications of that, first of all, in terms of entry, they're therefore very high barriers to entry. These can be economic because the great resources available to, to the business groups allow them to have uh, relatively low costs, or they may just be regulatory, as Simon was talking about earlier, whereby the government simply slaps on tariffs or import controls or licenses uh, only available to business groups and not to others, thus restricting competition. At the same time, Exit's very hard for business groups, uh, for non, uh, uh, within the business group, because even if firms are poorly performing, the business group is able, because it's quite interested in maintaining its overall power, its overall position in the economy, it can just cross-subsidize in these above-the-counter or below-the-counter ways through tunneling and through soft loans between different parts of the group. So what this means is that Schumpeterian creative destruction which is at the heart of the dynamism of a, a capitalist economy, both sides of creative destruction are essentially, they're not ruled out, but they're greatly weakened in uh, the connections world. And what that means is that competition is restrained both within markets and across um, the whole economy. It's jammed itself. Okay. Okay, now, um, I'll explain this figure in a moment. The, the, when we're worried about the issue of competition in market economies, we tend to be focused on competition in a marketplace. So if you think of a company like, oh, I don't know, Google, and you might be very worried about uh, Google's market power, its monopoly power, Google is, depending on the country, is controls... 60, 70, 80% of the search engine market. And so it's got a lot of monopoly power. And so competition authorities say in Europe are very concerned uh, with that market structure. Now, as you've heard, business groups sprawl across the whole economy. They're very highly diversified. So the problem with business groups is not just their monopoly power within a market, but their monopoly power in an economy as a whole what we call overall concentration. We've done some work 
to try and measure this. So let's give an example. If you look at the United States, the United States does not lack for large firms. And you look at the Amazons and the Googles and the uh, Apples, and you add them all up, taken together, the top five of them produce in the order of 3% of GDP, and the top 10 of them a bit more than 4% of GDP. So these are very powerful companies within their own markets, but they're not very powerful within the economy as a whole. On the other hand, even in a country which is really moving on, as we'll talk about later, like South Korea, those top five companies are generating 30% of GDP, and they are generating more than 40% top 10 companies. Now, this makes very life very easy, as Simon was saying earlier, for our, uh, for our government. When they want to ha have some say on the economy, they're not making hundreds of phone calls and they're not calling meetings. Five dynasts, five oligarchs, get them in the room. You've really got a big chunk of the economy. So we begin to get an idea of the operation of uh, the connections world. Even if you look at countries like China and India, more of a scale to the United States than, say, South Korea, even there, the overall concentration ratio of the largest firms, the Alibabas and the Tencents and whatever, are uh, over 10% and getting towards 20% for the top 10 firms. Really high overall, as well as market concentration. So that's, uh, so to speak, the first issue um, of the connections world. And the second issue concerns employment. Now, Asia anyway has a large and growing employment problem, and that does relate to business groups. To maintain stable employment shares uh, in the last 20 years, Asian countries have got to generate about 2 million jobs a, a month. There's a lot of work to do. So how do they do that? Do they do that? Are these business groups out there creating jobs? Well, the answer is essentially not really. They do create jobs. And it's not only do they create jobs, they create rather good jobs. If you're working for Tencent or Alibaba or, 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 or Tata or Astra in Indonesia, you're, you're working in a modern, developed firm, large firm. And productivity in the firm is high. Wages are high. You have job security. You have lots of... Uh, other benefits. However, there are not many of those jobs. If we look across Asia, typically 60, 70, 80, even in India, 90% of all employees work in the informal economy. What is the informal economy? The informal economy is very small, unregistered, semi-legal firms uh, they come, they go, productivity is extremely low, capital is extremely low, wages are very low, jobs are very insecure, right? So if we look at the size distribution of Asian firms, what do we see? Well, we see 5, 10, 15 enormous firms with lots of employees, but not a high share of employment. And we see a huge number, unknown number, really, of informal firms with very small numbers of employees coming and going. And we have a complete missing middle. The center of that distribution is absent. And so the standard way that most people get a job in Western economies is they get employed 
in startups, in new firms, in small and middle-sized firms that grow and so forth. And all of that, that dynamism of the labor market is largely absent in the, uh, uh, in the connections world. The third issue that I want to talk about is innovation. Now, this is really important. Um, why? Well, Asia, as Simon said, has grown very, very quickly in the last uh, 30, 40, 50 years. But that growth is what economists call, uh, I'm not belittling, it's a difficult thing to do. But nonetheless, it's extensive growth. It's basically taking workers who are unemployed or employed in very low productivity activities and moving them uh, into uh, higher value-added activities, um, uh, usually in industry or in services and often in, in urban centers. Gradually, the demographics are turning against most Asian countries, most markedly, of course, in China, but all over Asia. The, demogra so the demographics are turning uh, uh, worse. The possibilities for extensive growth are reducing. Asia is going to have to rely much more on innovation. Uh, how good is the connections world at innovation? Well, actually, the answer is really rather complicated. Uh, uh, I was reading the book today. It's a very, very long chapter, and it's rather nuanced. And I'm going to be telling you a nuanced story. It's not a black and white story at all. So let's start with some basic theoretical ideas. The pyramidal structures, in principle, allow business groups to shift resources around. Uh, and if they want to throw resources in innovation, they've got them. All right. Um, and it won't surprise you at all, therefore, that we see companies in China like Tencent or Alibaba, really high innovating companies, access to capital, very driven to innovate. In India, you see the Tata group exactly the same. But lots of business groups are not really interested in innovation. And don't forget, the purpose of the business group depends essentially on the family or indeed the individual that runs them. And some of them are interested in that, and some of them are interested in political power, and some of them are interested in conspicuous consumption. And there's nothing guaranteeing an interest in innovation. And many of these firms are actually interested in rent-seeking. And we talked a little bit about the Adani Group just before, which is clearly, essentially, uh, not only uh, more focused on rent-seeking than it is on innovative activities. Moreover, it just you might be tempted to say, well, also, this is very uh, highly uh, monopolistic market structure. Surely that would lead you against uh, innovation. But it's not completely clear that's the case because uh, Philip Agonon and others have done work that suggests that even with monopolistic competition, the small number of firms will compete with each other. And therefore, monopoly power in of itself doesn't automatically imply that there won't be or be very reduced innovation. So the reasons why you might expect innovation in business groups is the access to resources, their own resources, but also their ability to attract resources from government. Simon talked about the role of government policy in leading these economies. Most of these countries have very high level of government engagement in direction of the economy relative to OECD countries. And much of the focus there is going to be on innovation. And so the firms have their own resources and they have access 
to government resources to stimulate innovation. So, what's the so it could go one way or the other? What's the outcome? Well, the outcome, I'm afraid, is also a bit complicated. We've done some work and we've tried to look in at innovation in business groups, affiliates, firms in business groups, and firms not in business groups. And the basic result is actually firms in business groups innovate more than firms not in business groups. This is not actually a very new result, but it's very contemporary uh, work that we've done on this. And as far as we can work out, this is due to the additional resources, both their own and their access to resources, say, from the government. However, our argument is that business groups are holding back innovation in these countries in aggregate. Their business groups themselves undertake relatively more, uh, relatively more innovation than um, non uh, firms that are not in business groups, but they also are crowding out non-affiliated firms and they're, of course, suppressing entry and exit, which are two key ways in which uh, we see innovation uh, in uh, OECD-type countries. And so we have this rather interesting result. The business groups are undertaking more innovation, but when you look carefully at the data, Asian economies are not highly innovative, even controlling for their level of development. And so if we look here, we're looking here uh, uh, 2015 to 2019, and uh, this is uh, level of development, GDP per capita, and this is R&D expenditure. And the line is all the countries in the world uh, for which we had data, about 195, I think. And as you would expect, uh, um, um, the more the richer the country, higher the income per capita of the country, the more R and D uh, uh, you would get. Now, what's important about this? What you might have expected—I don't have a point, which is the same—but you might have expected for all the bump, all the stuff you read in the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Economist and so forth, you might have expected Asian economies to be up there in the top left in that white space. They're not. They're either within. At the level you would expect them to be for their GDP per capita, or they're way below it. The only exception to that is South Korea, uh, which does seem, and we're going to come back to South Korea in a moment. So, um, the second thing interested in is the relation. I mean, just because you spend on R and D, you don't necessarily get innovation. Uh, um, and so we look at here at patenting data, a uh, slightly different data period for various reasons. And here we're looking at R&D expenditure as a share of GDP against uh, uh, high quality patents, which I'll explain a little bit more about later if people want, but this is much closer to real inventions. Once again, essentially, the, it is the case that the more you spend on R&D, uh, the more innovation you do get. There's the Asians are all where you, Asian countries are more or less all where you'd expect them to be except for South Korea, if you can see it in the top corner. So this suggests that Asia is not performing terrifically well in terms of innovation overall across the continents. Um, and it's only our interpretation, and I want to stress, we haven't proved this, but our argument is that this is a consequence of the connections world uh, and the suppression of competition and free entry. 
Well, you've got the diagnosis of the problems. Uh, the connections world is not really a good institutional structure uh, for continued economic development of Asia. Um, the real issue is, what can you do about it? If Asia is going to continue on an upward path to prosperity, how are we going to address this? Um, and I think it's important to stress that, as I said earlier, the connections world is in equilibrium between politicians and oligarchs and dynasts. Um, so it's not going to fade away naturally. Uh, um, the logic, the gains to the firms of market entrenchment and political connections outweighs the gains from being in that system outweighs any gains from changing that system. So it's not going to be terribly straightforward to, to, for the connections world just to disappear. What we suggest in the book is that you need a panoply of, uh, uh, of policies across a very wide range. We have a whole chapter on this that I'm going to very briefly summarize. And it's clearly got to be simultaneously accelerating the disappearance of business groups and limiting the discretionary scope of politicians. Now, before you say, well, that's completely impossible, uh, 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 waste of conversation, I would remind you that uh, um, business groups were prevalent in the UK and the US. And indeed, they were very widely blamed um, for the 1929 crash. And Roosevelt essentially outlawed them. And that's why they aren't in the US anymore. And Britain didn't outlaw them in quite such a drastic way as Roosevelt. But uh, a series of changes to corporate law gradually ran them down. And then Wilson, Harold Wilson, actually, in the 1960s, outlawed them. Um, so it, it, we have instances of this. We have two other instances that are worth mentioning of big reforms in this area. One is in our region, is in South Korea, and the other is in Israel. So I want to talk very briefly about uh, what Roosevelt did, essentially. He basically prohibited pyramids. He prohibited related party transactions. He prohibited the tiering of subsidiaries. And he um, enhanced, uh, no, and, and in the UK, they enhanced the role and protection of minority shareholders. And so that's one set of policies that could be introduced. Taxation could play a very important role here. One of the things that South Korea has done, but nowhere else the best of minorities has done, basically you pay higher corporation tax if you're in a business group. So it gives, uh, gives the firms an incentive to unbundle themselves. Another thing that Koreans have done, they've got a very long-term view of this problem, is they've introduced quite high inheritance tax. So their argument will be that when the oligarch dies, and don't forget, you know, it, it, we're talking essentially about 10 people here. When, when these people die, uh, high taxes will mean that the family will have to sell off shares. And once again, uh, the firms will gradually unbundle. Competition policy. Um, Israel's been very interesting in this. Israel has a, uh, it's introduced some of these things as well, but Israel has introduced a requirement in competition policy that you look not only 
at market concentration, but you also look at overall concentration. Um, so that um, the overall power of the group becomes relevant in determining uh, um, whether a firm is allowed, for example, to make an acquisition or, or to expand itself. What about on the political front? Well, the key thing here is to create uh, a civil society, um, uh, but also we need much greater transparency. It is quite extraordinary when you look at what's on the rule in almost every country in Asia, there's very little transparency in terms of really quite basic things like interest declarations for politicians or, uh, or, or, or penalties for people who, who are found to be in breach of these declarations. There's almost no auditing of public spending. There's almost no rules for political donations. And so really, is only a starting point, but getting into the public domain, what is really going on in this murky world is at least a starting place to try and address the issues of the connection world. So let me conclude with um, just one point. We, Simon promised at the beginning that um, we would talk about the economic future of Asia and we've tried to do so. But I hope you can see that we don't believe the economic future, future of Asia is predetermined, either for good or for ill. Um, um, it's clearly threatened, in our view, by the ubiquity of the connections world. But it's also, uh, there, there is great potential through policy to come through this. And South Korea, perhaps, uh, provides at least some indication of how you might do so. And so in order to judge the future of, of, of Asia, you really need to be able to look closely at how the sorts of policies we're talking about are enacted. Thank you. Okay. okay, I'm going to start with a few questions just to warm you up, and then I will come to the audience uh, for, for your questions. And I wanted to start with a question about the model. Well, first of all, congratulations, really insightful really a different way of looking at the Asian success story. Um, and the data you present, especially those wonderful maps with the connections are really compelling. My first question is many other parts of the world have tried to a development strategy, which was based on industrial policy, a very symbiotic relationship between the private sector and the government, oligarchs, high degrees of concentration, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, Latin America have all kind of tried that model with, with terrible outcomes. Why is it that Asia has been able to make a success of it and achieve these phenomenal growth rates? May I start with Simon? That's because I gave him forewarning of the question. Uh, good. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that's, that's both a very good and a rather difficult question, so I'm not thanking you for that. Um, no, 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 of course not. It's an excellent question. Um, I think the answer, I mean, of course, answers always involve wriggling, so I'm going to wriggle. And the way I'm going to wriggle, I hope, is sort of intellectually uh, appealing in the sense that um, I think when we say Asia has been a success, it clearly has in more dimensions and not some more successful than others. And these foundations have proven remarkably common. And these combinations of private interest, public interest, and public policy seem to have led to 
not only directly greater growth, but also external effects of a, of a largely positive nature, with some of the main many caveats that we've made, no, notably about innovation. But I think if we step back a bit, we'll find that Asia itself has gone through enormous amounts of experimentation. So think about India post-independence, 47, Nehruism and planning commission and all of that. Most of that was pretty undesirable in an economic sense. It led to the consolidation of these business groups. They were largely lotus eaters, I mean, with few exceptions, um, and very little innovation. So Manmohan came along, drove a cart and horses through all of that, liberalized that. And in general, um, that has probably been very important. Now, it didn't disrupt the business groups. It disrupted the behavior of some of them that were simply taking rents. Others basically modernized and started competing and, and the like. But in India, what we see is that that, as it were, good side also coexists along a side that still flourishes, which was the Adani example. So, which has echoes of the past. Now, in China, it's a completely different matter, of course. Um, there, the Chinese mucked around for decades using state-owned enterprises, state R&D labs to you know, not necessarily very productive effect. They seem to have struck on a model, which is to create or allow the creation of these large private business groups, which they then funnel enormous amounts of public money into. And, uh, uh, and, and give them a reasonable degree of commercial reign. So I think that's a successful model. And the final point I make, and then shut up, is of course the, the, the linchpin of this argument is normally South Korea, because South Korea really basically um, went early on for a few sectors, consolidation, lots of infrastructure, lots of finance. But it did so, I suppose, in ways that were very helpful because most of those sectors were export-oriented. So they had the discipline. But the, right now, if you go to Korea, one of the big debates is, okay, we've got all of that, but what do we do with this massive behemoths that dominate the economy? They're wonderful in many ways, but maybe there are other things beneath them that don't thrive. So the innovative um, ecosystem, or to use that rather ugly phrase, may not be that luxuriant. Yeah. So that's my take on it. Saul, did you want to add anything? Uh, no, that's okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let me turn to uh, globalization and the debate about deglobalization and what happens to the connections world sure. in a world where actually we might be breaking up into big blocks. What happens to this model yeah. in a slightly different form and iteration of globalization? No. Maybe I'll, I'll so, kick off with that, Simon. Yeah. Uh, previous one. I think uh, it is quite complicated. I mean, I think the, the pendulum is swinging back against globalization. And um, I think it's, is it, it's essentially a bad thing for the problems that we've been trying to talk about because, um, you know, one of the hopes, I mean, a lot of what we've been trying to say is that both in the political world and in the business world, uh, there's a lack of competition in Asia um, um, and there's a lack of entry and there's a lack of change. And 
uh, as you deglobalize, you do reduce the pre- the, exactly those pressures of competition. Uh-huh. I mean, I also think that um, um, the particular way, let's take the example of China, uh, and the way that China will go, this um, whatever it's called, the dual circulation economy they're trying to create, which to me reads, um, I'm afraid, is horribly reminiscent of sort of the old British colonial tradition, you know, uh, empire free trade. They'll trade with the people they're friendly with. Uh, they'll have low tariffs and, and the world will reduce what to Janet China and its friends. What, what Janet Yellen called friend shoring. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think um, this is pretty pretty unhealthy for the future of China and the future of the world generally. And I think, um, so I think deglobalization is not a, not a good thing. I think as, as Simon was saying, what made, I mean, timing has been very important. Your answer to the Asia question, the timing was really very good for the rise of Asia. The population boomed at a time when globalization boomed at a time when uh, they connected themselves into the exporting world at a time when their education system was pouring out highly educated people. And I think that, I'm just answering the previous question now in a different way, that was very beneficial to them. This is will be much, be, being plugged into the global economy was very important to that growth. Mm. And so pulling out of that, either in the Chinese way by choosing to, or because the world is deglobalizing, is going to be unhealthy. Okay. Last question from me, and then I'll open it to the audience, which is turning to your policy recommendations. Um, how likely do you think those direct that directional change in policy is? Is in some ways you're kind of arguing that the Asian model needs to become like the Western model. I also sometimes wonder whether the Western model is actually becoming a little bit more Asian with growing levels of concentration and private sector, public sector links in in Western economies. So so talk a little bit about the policy recommendations, how likely directionally where they'll go. Maybe Simon, you can start. Okay. Um, Well, I think in in the last chapter where we deal with the the points that Saul um, talked to, um, we're pretty agnostic about their chances of success, in some cases actually quite pessimistic, because um, the way in which power and bargaining strengths are distributed, there are lots of barriers uh, to implementing uh, many of these policies. The other thing, of course, is that many of these policies have in a way been tried and and have proven not to be very successful. So the South Koreans went after cross holdings and and the like and the use of of, of particular vehicles and then found, of course, that the business groups were far too inventive for them and developed different channels for doing it. And what we say in the book is that the one measure that really seems to strike home is the adoption of inheritance taxes which we actually like for a couple of reasons. One, because it does address some of the business group problem, as we gave them the example of, of Samsung. Uh, the son of the founders, 21 billion um, uh, wealth that he left, uh, basically about 58% of that went to the state. And uh, the first thing uh, his son on, I think, emerging from prison from the third time, uh, having been convicted of some venality or the other, announced was that his children wouldn't be running the firms in the future. So I think um, 
South Korea is following in the footsteps of Japan, is adopting high inheritance taxes. In other countries, there's actually, like in India, there's no inheritance tax. So I think that's the more effective tool. But I do think um, you're absolutely right on competition. Many of the issues that we flag, you can find in Thomas Philippon's excellent book about the US. Exactly. And really, we really need to start... Um, being more radical in our thinking. And I thought Saul put it out very nicely. We don't need to think about sort of firm shares. We need to look at market structure much higher. Saul, anything to add? The the only thing, this opens a real can of worms. I don't want to go very far into this, but it's going to be uh, sensitive to what the political system is. I mean, the only, it's not even an example yet, but the only uh, initial steps towards an example we've got in the region is South Korea. Mm. And I think what's really interesting about South Korea, of course, is it's over the, over the relevant period move from being an autocratic state to being a democratic state. Mm. And I think if you look at that list of things we talk about, democracy is quite important in this. So, um, And if you look at China, of course, there's not really, you know, there's not a lot of evidence it's moving in a democratic direction. And if you look at India, there's quite a lot of evidence that it's sort of moving away. It's still mm-hmm. not formally democratic, but it's nonetheless a lot of the uh, defining characteristics of democracy are being a little bit undermined. So it's moving in the other direction. And that makes it harder to see uh, how these changes will come about. So that also explains why we're perhaps a little bit shaded to the pessimistic side. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let me turn to the audience. Uh, who would like to raise a question the conventional way? Uh, raise your hand and please introduce yourself and do ask a question, please. Uh, I'm going to start with the woman in the very back and I'll take the gentleman in front of her and then the gentleman here and then I'll do the middle of the, of the audience if that's all right. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Hello. That was louder than I thought. Um, Hi. Uh, I just wanted to introduce yourself. Oh, sorry. I'm Ellie. Um, I've worked a little bit with Sol and Simon, and uh, I used to be a student at LSE, graduated in 2021. Very good. Um, I just had a question regarding the connections world and whether or not you thought there might actually be an advantage in that for tackling the kind of climate crisis, just because there's been some examples of how, for example, in China, the government have been able to implement a swift transition towards more sustainable um, policies and kind of incentivizing companies around that, whereas sometimes there can be a lack of incentivization in um, other MEs. So that was kind of like question number one. And then if leading on from that, are there any kind of points that you think we could learn from in the West? And even though there are some fundamental structural differences, is there anything that we could help to tackle this crisis, which I think is quite important? Okay, thank you. Take the gentleman right in front of you, three rows ahead of you. Yes. Thank you. Uh, hi, but 
Uh, ben, I'm also an alumnus of the European Institute, actually. Um, I want to pick up on the last point that uh, Solomon, uh, if you're not working in democracy, because you don't have to care what the people think, and the, and the actors involved have no incentive to, to break down these structures. Okay, thank you. And I'll take, there was one more just in the front there. I think it was that gentleman in there. You might try, there's a mic next to you there. Try that one. Okay. Um, thanks. Yeah. My name's Sam. I was a white collar crime uh, lawyer turned um, PhD student. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so my question is about the consequences that flow from uh, Asian firms constituting a disproportionately high share of national GDP. Uh, in particular, does it necessitate, uh, necessitate um, less regulatory scrutiny or more government control? over firms. Hmm. So for example, people often say that um, the CCP operates through Huawei. Um, and a kind of second related question I have is, does the existence of the connections world um, require or necessitate higher levels of corruption? Hmm. Uh, which of you would like to go first? Well, I'll do a song. I mean, um, okay. um, Ben, um, we did quite a lot of thinking about this issue of um, uh, the political system and democracy versus autocracy and, and is, is the problem an autocratic problem, is a solution a democratic problem? And we've, in the book, I mean, I, I've got the relevant slide actually here because I've got some additional slides. There's not really much evidence of a difference when you look at uh, autocracies versus democracies, they all have this problem. I do think it's the case that the solution, the, the unbundling this may rely on some degree of democracy or at least some degree of transparency in the political system. Because it doesn't have to be. You could imagine uh, uh, you know, a, a, a Chinese centralized system in which they, they did seek to tackle this type of thing. It doesn't have to be democracy, but you do need much greater, some system that generates much greater accountability on the political side and a willingness to, to create incentives. I mean, the, the key point about business groups is they don't disappear naturally, but they don't have to be made illegal. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the stock markets, highly diversified firms trade at a much lower uh, uh, PE, they have much lower prices than very concentrated firms. It's a sort of disadvantage to be a, a, a very highly diversified firm like business groups are. The reason why they're choosing to swallow that financial disadvantage, I think, is because of the benefits of the concentration of connections that yeah. they get. And so, uh, so I think... I don't think it is the case that uh, this is this argument is the same as an argument for democracy. Um, can I have a go at Ellie's question and leave yeah, sure, with, sure. with the rest? Um, Ellie's question, of course, is horribly difficult. Um, <laughs> um, I was reading the book uh, today in sort of preparation for this uh, to remind myself what we said. And one of the terribly striking things, because it was written, you know, at the height of COVID when there were other issues on minds. Uh, is that there's no mention of climate change anywhere in the book until the very last page, I think, where we sort of uh, uh, just very vaguely mention. And I think if we were rewriting it today, it really wouldn't look like that. We'd make it much more serious. And I was, I have thought a little bit about what the connections world means for um, climate crisis. And I think, once again, I think it is a bad, not a good thing. 
And, and, and in, sorry. it's like I was saying for innovation, it could be a good thing if one or two oligarchs and one or two politicians were suddenly persuaded it was important to do something about this. They could do something. That's the advantage of this sort of system. But it's not entirely clear that that is going to be really in what will make that in their interests. Um, and so, on the other hand, the concentration of power in this way and the anti-competitive practices and so forth make it, I think, much harder to allow for really profound changes of the sort that climate change requires. Um, lessons for, for the West. I mean, I think, I think there is some lesson that I haven't really spent enough time thinking about. I mean, I think these countries have been very successful in proactive industrial policy, which has allowed them to guide their economies. Now, as, as Simon perfectly put it earlier, this is verboten in the West. Mm. Uh, and as a result, you know, we've got really into quite a lot of trouble one way or another, uh, 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 at least regionally. Um, and how they've managed to achieve that by work, government working very closely with firms is something that's worth exploring. But I don't think you'd want to do it through the connections world. Yeah. Well, just very briefly, and then we can move on. But to Sam's point, when you ask about the consequences of um, uh, concentration of business groups, whether it means less regulatory oversight or a more government control, I, th I think it, it, it can mean both, actually. And probably China's the perfect case of where it does. Um, uh, Competition policy in, in, in the Chinese system or in most autocracies is not really about competition, managing competition or in increasing competition. It's essentially deciding who's going to be the main beneficiaries of, of, of in the market and maybe of public largesse as well. And with that comes also a decision about what your implicit responsibilities are uh, as a firm, as a business group. And if you err on the wrong side of what those responsibilities are meant to be, which is probably the case of Mr. Ma and Alibaba in the last year or so, you basically then get punished. So, or you can, that's one example. So there's a trade-off there, but you can, I think, see that you could have less regulatory oversight, people get the preferences, people get the support and the like, but whether it may come more government control. I don't know whether that answers the question, but I think that's probably the way to think about it. Okay. I'm going to take some questions from the middle of the audience, and then I'll turn to the online audience. Gentleman who's there, the woman in front of him, and the young woman. Sorry, excuse me, say young. The woman. I'm Murray, a friend of the LSE. Um, I'm fascinated by what Saul has to say about innovation. Um, something that Asia is not particularly good at, which is what you mentioned, because surely disruption is what really encourages innovation. And of course, with a lack of competition in much of Asia, it's very hard for that disruption to succeed. And to take an example in the States where it has worked, um, take the motor industry, where a firm like Tesla has turned companies like Ford, which have been in business for 100 years, upside down. Um, and without that disruption, perhaps we wouldn't be seeing this huge mass move towards 
electrification of vehicles. Okay, thank you. Uh, woman just in front of you, next row up. Hello, I'm Rosie Bisher. I'm an investor and a friend of Simon's. Um, my question was around how different China is to some of these other countries that you talk about. We've obviously seen a very short period of capitalism, and we've also seen, I guess, three generations of a one-child policy, uh, which has kind of inhibited the buildup of some of these persistent dynasties uh, that you have seen in other countries. Uh, and I was wondering how, how you think that, that market in particular is going to develop. Okay. And the woman right here. We could get a mic down to you. I think it's mainly for the online audience. And then I have to get Nofal in as well. <laughs> That's okay. You go ahead and then over to Nofal. Thank you. Um, I have a question about the nature of um, connections in the connections world. Do you see them as um, sort of frozen, rigid, and inflexible, or are they capable of reacting dynamically to sort of like policy interventions or any other external factors? Um, the second question is more like a clarification. Um, you mentioned that there are firms like small informal firms operating in some sort of a shadow economy, and they tend to have low wages, low productivity. I'm curious why that is. Okay, no fault. Thank you. My the, the mic isn't on. <laughs> Not a middle-income Asian country, though. We, we... Yeah. So thoughts about Japan is the question. How does, yeah, the question is what, how does Japan fit into this framework and how do you think about Japan in the, 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 the sort of first Asian model? Which of you would like to, Simon, do you want to start? Yeah, okay. Well, very quickly, I just, um, well, I'll pick those that I find easiest, I think. Let's <laughs> leave the rest of the sort. There we go. So that, that, that's known as... Uh, preferential treatment. Okay, um, nice lady here who asked about the nature of the connections world, inflexible or dynamic? Highly dynamic, um, actually, um, on both sides. I mean, politicians and political parties also are highly inventive at constructing these relationships and adapting them. Um, but certainly the business groups themselves are. Um, a second point, which is related to that, which I think relates to um, the bigger arguments is, I don't think we want to give you the impression that business groups just sit in their silos and take rents. They actually uh, compete a lot and they often compete with each other, and sometimes in highly cutthroat ways. So this isn't a world where, you know, I eat that lotus and you eat that one. It's we both go after the same lotus. Now, um, that's not always the case, but it is, it is often the case. I mean, take China, for example. If we look at the um, Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu, these companies, um, they are competing with each other. They're not competing with Google and, uh, and, and others because they're, they're kept out of those markets, but they do compete with each other and they compete uh, in, a, in a pretty intense way. And that goes back to the point that Saul was making in the slides that, you know, even if they, this is monopolistic competition, grosso modo, it can be perfectly um, um, 
promoting of, of, of innovation. There's no reason why that should hold back innovation. They might be going for neck and neck competition, a la the models of Aguillon and the like, and therefore you can get innovation. And, and that's in by and large our view of it. Um, so dynamic and by no means just in silos. There's some places where they are but in others that they're not. Um, I think the, the point, and this comes to the informality, is that they're not very good as a result of letting in others, whether it be foreigners, because they have governments in their pockets, or vice versa, or other smaller companies that can come up, grow, and develop. So the entry and exit and the churning that is so characteristic of many dynamic economies, you simply don't get. And that's probably where a lot of the bad news lies. And on the informality point, um, well, what that really means is that these are people who are working in in enterprises, often small enterprises, untaxed enterprises, have very low capital, have very low skills, very low wages, low productivity. And actually, this is a perfect example of really the probably the first basic model in development economics of Arthur Lewis's dual economy. And the sad thing is that despite, you know, 70 years of rhetoric about creating good jobs, creating good employment, moving away from informality, most Asian countries with the possible except, with the exception probably of South Korea, uh, including China, have really not achieved very much, and this is a very um, um, you know striking result. That doesn't mean to say the business groups, as Saul pointed out, don't create jobs. They do. They just don't create very many of them. Um, uh, okay, so I think I, now I haven't cherry picked. I pass it. To Thank you. Uh, well, I, on the disruption point, uh, um, I basically agree with what was said. Uh, I think innovation, of course, innovation is a very complicated business, but, but uh, innovation is, is, is often associated with very considerable change. Um, um, it is possible to have innovation within existing firms, and that's very common. And indeed, most patents, I think, are by existing firms, but nonetheless, an awful lot of what you might call radical innovation, really major changes uh, take the form of people that are outside the system and come into the system. Tesla would be an example of that. Of course, Microsoft was an example uh, ages ago and so forth. And, um, well, the playing field in the connections world is not level for those people versus the incumbents. And, and so it's a, it's a somewhat worse environment for that sort of disruptive uh, innovation. It is a better, at least as good an environment for innovation within existing firms, which is exactly what our findings were. Um, on the Japan point, uh, I'm slightly nervous about going too deeply into Japan, but for, we made a decision to look at uh, uh, what you might call developing Asia, the, the countries that developed in Asia uh, um, really since the, since the 1980s. Um, and that, that's the period that we're looking at. And I know there's some people in the room who actually know a lot about Japan, and I know next nothing about Japan. So I, I really don't want to go too, too <laughs> I'm looking at you here. So, um, um, so I don't want to go too deeply in this, but I think it is fair to say that the sort of period that we're describing for the connections world, perhaps are closer to what we saw in Japan in the interwar period, or even in the Meiji period, actually. And one thing that MacArthur did uh, was 
shut all that down. The business groups stopped. They were all broken up. They were all so so by force of war. Uh, many of the institutional structures we're describing were, I mean, they haven't completely disappeared by any means, but they were significantly reduced in power and authority. So I think that's the reason why, another reason why we don't look at Japan. Now, there was what sounded like potentially a very interesting question from Simon's friend whose name I didn't get and the question I didn't hear. Um, I was on China. How different is China? Rosie. Well, it's very different. <laughs> um, uh, it's very, very different. I mean, for example, all this story about innovation, and we're saying, well, there's a lot of problems on innovation, uh, potentially because of the connections world. I suppose it is possible that it doesn't hold China because the government, I mean, I think their innovation, uh, you know, an interpretation of one of the graphs we had was that China spends a lot on R&D but doesn't get a huge number of uh, patents out of that. But China's got a lot to spend. So we can just go on and on spending. The fact that it's inefficient uh, as innovation doesn't mean it won't end up very innovative. And it's, of course, of enormous scale. So I don't think we can... So I think China is, is quite different in that respect. And it's also different in the respect that it the nature of its autocracy in the one-party state. I mean, though the forms are very different, it still bears in many ways resemblances to the to the former Soviet Union as was. I mean, it's, it runs a system, those of you who are interested in this sort of thing, it runs a system which is Lenin, you know, in the early 1920s, introduced something called the NEP, the New uh, Economic Policy, and it was abandoned very, very quickly. Uh, um, 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 doesn't matter why, but, uh, um, but the point is that China has essentially in the 1980s introduced the NEP and hasn't really moved from that. I mean, it's changed its form, so it is it is different in that sense as well. Okay, I'm going to turn to the online questions. Lucy Porter has been monitoring those. If you could give us three of them. Absolutely. Hi, good evening. Um, some great questions online. Uh, the first one comes from Alfredo, who is affiliated with the FIA Business School in Sao Paulo. Um, he's got actually two questions, one for each speaker. So Saul, your data on corporate co- uh, concentration suggests it is higher the smaller the domestic economy they operate in, for example, South Korea and Vietnam. Yet those compete internationally. May that sustain their innovation rate? And a question for Simon. You are also very familiar with Latin America, where there are large business groups, yet they seldom compete internationally. Why are the Asian business groups more outward orientated? And then I have a couple of questions, a few questions around um, similarities with different regions um, or countries. So a question from Ashot, who is an LSE student from Armenia. Um, So actually a question for Saul. You have previously wrote about Russia's innovation ecosystem. Please could you tell us one common similarity and one contradiction within that? And a final question from um, around Yugoslavia. Um, the um, fussel and the similarities with that. Yeah. <laughs> Our students give you questions like sort of exam examination questions. <laughs> Yugoslavia, discuss. <laughs> I last worked on Yugoslavia in about 1982, <laughs> but I'll see what I can remember. Okay. There you go. You go first, Sol. You cherry. Well, they actually assigned. Um, so you've got no choice. Yeah. yeah. 
um, on the data thing, um, it, it's quite an interesting point um, uh, that was made. It, it, it's obviously the case that, uh, well, not obviously, um, overall concentration does tend to be higher uh, in smaller countries because of a sort of given size. These business groups just grow and grow and grow and absorb and absorb and absorb. And they sort of, in each country, they're all sort of vaguely a similar size. And so if you're in a small country, the concentration ratio uh, is high. If you're in a large country, it's lower. So you're absolutely right to to, a right to have spotted that. Uh, Clearly, larger countries can carry uh, more big firms. Um, um, uh, And why Asian business groups more outward-oriented? I mean, I think... I don't really know the answer to that. There's probably people in this room that do, but I think, um, you know, what what Asia seemed to work out was that the policy, uh, very much inspired actually by the Soviet Union, was that you would grow behind barriers and protect your industries. The infant industry argument that you would you would close your ba- uh, borders as much as you could, and your economic development would be focused on domestically initially, and then later on you would trade. Um, seem to be proven, say in India, not really to work. And so these countries started industrializing at just the moment when all the attention came to the view that actually growth should be driven by uh, external uh, uh, demand and by exporting. So I think it's it's a timing, uh, it's a timing thing uh, about when Asia really started to grow. Uh, Ashok uh, Innovation System. Um, it's really a bit on China. I'm going to speak more about China um, versus Russia. It's it's a little bit hard to know because you see the someone over there uh, asked before about uh, Huawei. Um, is Huawei really a private firm? Mm-hmm. Right. It's set up by you know this ex military guy. Uh, it provides lots and lots of military equipment, but it also f- makes mobile phones and, and, and 5G equipment, uh, and also f- the, for the army, but also for consumers. Is it private? Is it not private? Well, in Russia, it would have been a state-owned firm, for sure. In, in China, it's just rather hard to tell. Um, but I think in Russia... Um, there was much more reliance on large-scale state-run institutions, you know, the closed towns uh, uh, where scientists all lived together in these towns that no one else could visit. Um, and they developed inventions, which then were largely imp- applied in the military-industrial complex, whereas China has a really much more decentralized approach. Though they control firms probably a lot more uh, than we would do so in the West. I don't know whether that answers that. On Yugoslavia, I, I'm afraid my memory is just not quite good enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, just very quickly to Alfredo's question, which is in a way what's Paul's addressed it a bit. Maybe I, I should add a bit. Um, I think it's a misnomer to think that Asian business groups are more um, externally oriented than in, in, in other regions. I mean, it may be true. I simply don't know the comparatives. But I think it's just a very mixed picture. 
So for every Tata that has certainly a lot of interests outside, exports a lot and has acquired assets abroad, or Samsung and, and the South Korean companies that we know very well about, there are many other um, business groups that largely operate on a domestic scale. And it's no accident. I mean, some of those markets, whether it's China or India, are very large, obviously. But also, that's precisely where the connections world plays out its benefits. That's where they can get access to credit. They can get access to contracts. They can get access to information and so on that gives them some sort of um, step advantage in some instances. So I think the idea that all these business groups are very efficient, very externally oriented is a nuanced response. It's true in some countries and in some um, uh, in some companies, but it is not generally uh, uh, true. Now, uh, this is perhaps an attempt to marry that question to, to Rose's question, which is about China, because China, yes, is, is very, very different. And there we see um, uh, um, most Chinese business groups, of which there are many, are again domestically focused. Why wouldn't you be in a large growing economy with rising purchasing power, incomes and the like? Why wouldn't you be? That's where your connections are. But increasingly, a bunch of Chinese business groups are focusing on acquiring assets abroad, exporting, moving into new markets. The most obvious example is electric vehicles, say, but there are plenty of other cases. Well, why are they doing that? Well, they think they have an advantage. And of course, it fits in with what's all earlier pointed out, which is that this is precisely the strategic areas which are mandated by government. So they get the support to do it, they get the funding, they get the incentives. Now, we'll see whether this leads to um, really sustainable businesses being built. You can see some cases where that is the case. Geely's takeover, Volvo and the like, looks to be a, um, a, a pretty good example of, of, of positive things. But there are other examples that are much less uh, true. So the, the, the jury is out, is out on that. But to go back to my point, most Asian business groups basically operate at home, and that's where their advantages lie. Okay. All right. Sadly, I have to draw this to a close, and I wanted to start by thanking Simon and Saul for a really interesting rethink of the Asian story and what has driven the success of, of the Asian model in recent decades. But they've also given us a lot to think about in terms of the Asian future and the issues and challenges that Asia faces. So I think that was a COVID well spent by the two of you. <laughs> very well done. We're very glad that you uh, that you uh, made uh, made such productive use of your time. Uh, for those of you who are interested in buying the book, I think some of you have received a QR code where you can order it. And there's also going to be a table in the back as you exit where you can place your order for the book. And I would very much uh, encourage you to, to do that and read the rich data and analysis and perspectives that are in it. And so it finally just leaves it for me to ask you to join me in thanking the speakers for an excellent, excellent evening. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.